Welcome to another exciting podcast, Driven Hunter, brought to you by Mission Crossbows. This week, we're joined with our good friend, John Redman of Nose Jammer. And John, we go way back, don't we? We do. It's been a long time. Oh, since, I think, 2005 is really when we started hunting together. I actually probably got to know you even before that, yep. way back in the days when I guided over in Buffalo County for Tom Interbow yeah, at Bluff to, Country Outfitters. Yeah, it be earlier than 2005. Yeah, Absolutely. I guess, yeah. It's been, <laughs> seems time flies, man, it doesn't does. it? It really does. It's amazing how way back then, you know, I knew you as a big big deer hunter and uh, you're still in the business. You've taken it to a whole new level and we're going to talk about how you develop nose jammer and stuff as we go on. But uh, what, a, what a ride it's been so far for, for both of us. I mean, and, and we're still working together and still mm-hmm. hanging out. So absolutely having a lot of fun. You know, had I known what I know now back then. <laughs> right. That's, <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> We'd be in a little different oh, position, wouldn't we? <laughs> we'd have no more room left on the walls. Oh, it's crazy. <clears throat> but yeah, today we're going to talk a lot about hunting big deer and uh, how you've learned to fool the noses of some big bucks. And mm-hmm. you know, I got to say, after knowing you this long and, and seeing what you've done with this product and, and how effective it is, it's going to be fun to uh, kind of dive into this and, and get your thoughts a little bit more about it and... Uh, just overall in general hunting, you know, and, and trying to outsmart these big deer, which you've mastered. Uh, I've learned a lot about, you know, that from you. And uh, we've had a, a tremendous amount of success because of the product since. So we're, you know, let's get started today and, uh, you know, let's talk. Well, hey, why don't we just start out with talking a little bit about the history mm-hmm. of where we got started? Because that's kind of cool. Thinking back, I think in 2005 uh, is when I first started hunting with you. I had old Donnie Hansen running the camera, oh, yeah. and uh, we shot a really nice buck up on top of uh, one of your food plots, one of your turnip plots, yeah. and you had a water hole there. Mm-hmm. And you know, I even learned that from you, uh, how effective these water holes have really become and how you used them. Yeah, you know, and really uh, <clears throat> backing up, I learned the waterhole thing from you, and then we started to put them in on my ground, and <clears throat> it works so well because, you know, we're in rugged bluff country, and the water doesn't pool, um, and they have to break cover to get water in most places, so when we put it in those areas, like we learned uh, that they already want to be, um, it was as strong as a food plot, you know, if not, not more strong than that during the rut. Absolutely. And we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, favorite things and favorite uh, tips and tactics to take in big deer. Um, but uh, yeah, that, I mean, that time period and when I shot that deer, I, you know, it's just phenomenal. If you've ever been down and hunted with John in Houston County, um, you know, he's got a lot of deer and a lot of big deer. And uh, when I could uh, really appreciate about what you've done down there is just your, I guess, strict management plans that you've, you know, set forth and, and how you've done that. That's just been amazing. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you built such a uh, deer mecca. Well, <clears throat> it takes so long to do any of that, as you know. But when I first took over and put all that ground together, which was 4,000 contiguous, 
it was overpopulated. And I think we rode in a helicopter together a time or two, counting them. We did. <clears throat> so we knew they were overpopulated. And for the first four years, we shot 125 plus does a year. And you were in on that. We had a lot of good times, man. That was fun shooting that many does. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a double edged sword. You think, should we be shooting this many deer? And, and really, uh, I knew we needed to take and, and lower the, the population. Um, and once we did, there was enough habitat to go around, if you will. And then we started to see the results, you know, one and a half year old tens coming out. Well, we never had one and a half year old tens. Right. You know, we were covered up in eight pointers with, with short brows when it was overpopulated. So I remember that. <clears throat> so matter of so, fact, I hope I think helped clear one of those eight pointers oh, yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And those those for some reason are the ones that are beating everybody up. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, so much um, of the QDMA um, strategy is right on, and I've learned that from from the beginning. I, I took over when it was overpopulated. Now I like to think it's well managed. Um, absolutely, got to keep those numbers down, and the quality starts to come through the roof. Uh, you're right. Um, one of the things that uh, you just hit on is taking out those big mature eight pointers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that really seemed like it made a big difference for you because you really targeted, I mean, you targeted them more than you did even a trophy class deer. You're like, hey, if you get a chance at taking that big eight out that has short brows. I mean, let's get him out of there because mm-hmm. he was a bully and he's basically running all those younger bucks with great potential out of there where they're relocating, you know, far away because they don't want to have to deal with that bully in the herd. And uh, once you started taking those deer mm-hmm. out and kind of thinning that genetic out of the out of the herd, yeah. you started to see a lot more 10-pointers. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> case in point, uh, that one year, um, it was actually the first year I ever took Carson, uh, first day I ever took Carson out in the field and John said hey this is all your area is primarily just for bow hunting mm-hmm. but John said hey if you get a chance he said you can come down and take on one of these management mm-hmm. deers with the with a gun I'd appreciate it so I took Carson out. I thought this is a great opportunity to introduce uh, Carson I think was three or four years old I mean he's barely old enough yeah, to walk absolutely and uh Boy, I, I mean, that's probably one of my most memorable hunts that I still mm. have. And I was just on a management hunt that day. Mm-hmm. And we went and sat in one of the valleys. And, of course, the deer started pouring out into uh, into the food sources. And eventually, here come that swamp buck. that yep. we would, That's what you nicknamed him. Yep. And, you know, he had short brows. And we made a good shot on him, Carson. It was hard to keep Carson in the blind the whole time because he wanted to always peek out of the window. He was so excited. Yeah. I had a plethora of candy and stuff like that to keep him preoccupied and keep him busy. But uh, yeah, some of my most valuable footage that uh, I cherish now yeah. is just that that hunt. But we got rid of that eight-pointer. Mm-hmm. And then years later, uh, like you said, I mean, the results started showing up. Um, you know, spinning that ahead, I shot the pincher buck. Yeah which was a beautiful, clean, typical with long brows. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you went from these short brow tines to, you know, more prominent, yeah. you know, brow tines, which mm-hmm. obviously make that genetic uh, what you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
you know, <clears throat> going back and talking about those eight points uh, with short brows, you know, I I believe that that's a late fawn that never caught up by the time winter hit, and so he never catches up. Um, and like I said, those, and you know, are the fighters, and, and many times I would have the turn-up plot where you shot your first buck. I'd have a guy come back and say, well, that eight-pointer with no brows run to the edge of the fence every time a buck came near. Right. And he'd just run him out of the plot, jump the fence a couple of times, ran the bucks up. So time after time, you know, Hunter's coming back and telling me how many short-browed eights are running all the bucks off, just kind of confirmed a little more of that um, they're working against you type thing. Um, but, yeah, now the eight-point, I was covered up in them. Now the, the eight-point with short browses is, is, is very rare. So all that management works. It's a leap of faith to go ahead and shoot that many deer. You know, as you're, when you're managing a piece of property, you think, boy, I don't know. Am I, am I going to have enough does left and my bucks are going to get up and roam to the neighbor? You know, and, and, and they might. But you, you still have to get your, you know, herd balanced and in line to, to get those genetics, those, those great genetics to show themselves, you know? Yeah, it's a sacrifice. I Absolutely. Mean, <clears throat> when you got that larger property, the last thing you want to go in there, and, and you did hunt it, right? I mean, you didn't go in there and overpressure the deer to, yeah. to shoot that many deer, but, I mean, you hunted them late in the season. We yeah. kind of targeted them certain times of the yeah. year where you went pressure them off, but... Um, yeah, it just took a lot of perseverance and you know, just to get to that level. Yeah, and it did. I never thought I would find enough people to help me with it that wouldn't shoot the bucks when they saw them. Right. And <clears throat> I had neighbors and their hunting parties join us. And, um, you know, for three days, last three days of the gun season, we'd have 75 people out there hunting, which you have to be very careful doing. But these people were excellent. They'd have a big buck run by them and wouldn't even think about it. A mistake or two was made with spikes here and there, knob and bucks, and that's going to happen. That's just part of the cost. But, yeah, great groups of people around me really helped out, trustworthy farm families, you know. Well, you know, that's a good segue into what we're going to talk to next because, um, you know, after managing all these deer and, and, you know, hunting these deer intensively and just targeting big deer over the years, um, you developed Nose Jammer. And uh, I love to get in a little bit of history to kind of set this up for the, the viewers so they don't think we're just trying to yeah. sell them, you know, some latest and greatest thing. Mm-hmm. But this is a product um, that when you developed this, I, you kind of brought me into the fold cause we were buddies mm-hmm. and we weren't, you know, potential advertisers. You were just letting me test this stuff out as a friend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I gotta say, I mean, we saw instant results when we started using this and we, we were testing it in the field, um, using this stuff, just seeing if it would cover our scent trail and how we were always getting trailed in mm-hmm. uh, to the stand and then in the stand and stuff. And we saw the effectiveness. So give us a little background history on, on how Nose Jammer got its start. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, running the operation at the Outfitter, just real quick, um, I was buzzing around like a bee trying to find the right wind. <clears throat> I could get you in on a food plot and water hole setup, which is 
premium setup in my country on an interior. I could get you in there on Tuesday night, but the wind wouldn't let us get back in there till Thursday or Friday. <clears throat> and so what was happening was we're creating gaps and those bucks would get in the gaps, you know, from one day to the next. I know you know that you, they don't know what they're going to do. Um, so I'm buzzing around the property like a bee with five guys, you know, uh, trying to find the right win. And I, I think, you know, that they get onto that. Obviously they do. But uh, when Nose Jammer came along, things changed qu pretty differently, you know, quite a bit differently and uh, for the better. But, uh, you know, really how I got on this idea is I was guiding a hunter, a family friend, uh, in Colorado, we were elk hunting, and <clears throat> we'd blown a setup like you do when you're elk hunting, and uh, we're sitting up against a ponderosa pine, and he strips the bark on it as we're just taking a little break, and he says, man, these trees got a sweet smell to them, and I thought nothing of it. I mean, I've been in the woods as much as anybody who chases critters. Right. Pine's a pine, you know? Uh, but I did smell that tree, and what I was smelling was something real sweet. I thought, it's got to be maple syrup. You know, and I had no idea if they tap them or not, or if they have maple in them, but that's what I was smelling. Um, <clears throat> and I dismissed it for a little while, but then it kind of came back to me, that idea, um, and I really started to put some thought into it. 20 years earlier in the hair care business, I had thought of a product like a deodorant stick. You would take this deodorant stick and you wipe it on trees, um, and then when the critters get around, it would overwhelm their sense of smell or right. keep them from smelling that's what they did smell but i had no idea what to use um so when i when i smelled the the compounds coming out of that tree i merged those ideas and thought you know started researching it to back up and it didn't take any time to find out that trees shrubs and grasses emit aromatic compounds mm -hmm. and that's kind of when i started to use the hair care contacts and go to the formulator um, and have them formulate something with these most common compounds that we had found uh so the ball started rolling that way and it really helped having those contacts in the hair care business i didn't get charged for any r d <clears throat> you know um which was huge at that point uh, yeah so this wasn't just some little basement concoction that you were whipping up and brewing it no Maybe you were you were working with you know guys that had you know chemist backgrounds Absolutely. and stuff like that 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 knew how to formulate, help you formulate yep. the right, you know, stuff. Yeah, and it, and it truly was the right thing to do because they they started providing me with samples that were really close, um, and then I would hand out samples to you. I would hand out to some of my hunters that were Florida, East Coast, um, Texas, and I didn't know if it worked in those places. They took it home after they hunted with me. Called me, hey, it works here. Um, so we tweaked it and tweaked it and tweaked it a little bit till uh, we found something that was working everywhere and, and critters uh, were not alarmed when they got a nose full of it. Now at that point, <clears throat> as we progressed, um, what was happening was I was hanging on to the wind, but my guides were telling me, listen, we hunted this food plot and water hole last night and the wind was swirling, but they didn't run off. And so I'm still hanging on to my 125 stand sites with the wind. I got I can't do this without the wind. So it took the guides telling me, "Listen, we should probably hunt that again, even if the wind swirls over, because the does aren't running off in there." And then we kind of started to, because Jammer was doing what it was doing to the critters and keeping them from running off. Then what we started to do is, 
is use frequency on them. <clears throat> and I really think that's what held us back um, more in the past is, like I said, I can get you in there Tuesday night, but it's not till Thursday. Right and, right. and and now what has happened is day number three is magic. If I get a guy in camp and we know there's a big buck on this food plot and water hole, <clears throat> if I could just get him to sit there for three, four days straight, gonna get the buck's going to cycle through. Um, we shot a 180-inch buck a couple years back, but it was such a great example. Had a guy in there. Um, we found the buck on a trail camera. Guide puts him in the tree stand. Sits there the first day. Sits there the second day. After the third morning, he couldn't take it anymore, and I don't blame him. Nothing was happening. But so we didn't lose our frequency. I put the new guy in there. He shot him that night. Wow. So, but that guy, the first guy, was not real happy that no, he made that decision. But he's going around not being happy anywhere. So <laughs> that just happens, man. Yeah. You, you got bad mojo sometimes. But point being, had we not manned that position and said, just stay there till he comes back, we wouldn't have got that buck either. Yeah. I, you know, one thing I've learned over the years, um, and, and I'm sure you can attest to this, is that, you know, when you're playing the wind, say you're hunting with the wind in your face. Um, not necessarily a buck generally doesn't operate on that that premise. He isn't going to come in, mm-hmm. you know, with the wind, you know, not in his favor. Yeah. So now you're you're kind of changing the rules um, by now you're going in there hunting where the wind is more in favor for the deer, and a buck will use that. And when he when he uh, you know comes in there, his he doesn't have. Um, you know, he has his guard up, but he he thinks everything is fine mm-hmm. because you're not trying to just trick him on wind. You yeah. know, you're going in there now with this product. And uh, like I said, I mean, when we first started this, or when you first started uh, giving us some of these samples to try out and see how effective they were, I remember exactly the day I was, is you know, started using it. We were in, in Illinois mm-hmm. hunting... Um, and we're sitting in the tree. It was in the rut. And we had a long walk-in. Um, and there's a lot of deer per square mile there. And we're sitting on this long finger ridge. And we had, because it was deep in the timber, we had to walk across a lot of primary trails. Mm-hmm. And I just was, you know, we, we were always consistently getting, you know, back-trailed all the way to the tree, either by a mature doe or a buck. But... You know, and then they kind of smell around. Eventually, spot you in the tree and blow the whistle, and yeah. kind of wrecks kills your hunt for mm-hmm. the, that time period. So, um, when we started seeing deer cross our trail with little to no response of smelling where we had just walked, I started thinking to myself, "Wow, there is something to this mm-hmm. stuff." And uh, of course, you know, you, you told us, you know permeate the branches and you you know yourself with it mm-hmm. be fairly um you know liberal with the stuff yeah and <clears throat> it started you know giving us what we need mm-hmm. and we and then we didn't have to pay attention again to the wind as much and, and we hunt just like you do you know high concentrations of deer so you're always going to have deer downwind of you yeah it's just that's just the nature of the beast here mm-hmm. where we hunt so um, but it's, it's just really interesting how it kind of got its start. Of course, you mentioned you came from 
all the hair care business. That's when I was guiding you guys back yep. then. Yep. And uh, a lot of people probably wouldn't, wouldn't know that you came from that. It wasn't it the purple Aussie yeah, yeah, shampoo. Yeah, that's what it so was. if you have, you know, if you see in the the purple Aussie shampoo thing, you can think big big deer killer John Redman. Um, that's where you got your start. But yeah. Uh, yeah, years later, formulate and stuff. And of course, now you have shampoos and conditioners all in the line of the nose jammer line. That yeah. uh, my wife's, you know, she is a uh, Nazi when it comes to uh, you know using scent type of shampoos sure. and stuff like that yeah. and how you know, that head of hair can handle it yep. and she she uses your product mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. not just during the hunting season but um <clears throat> you know just controlling that scent and stuff i mean we've i way back in the day when i worked for hunter specialties obviously uh they had all this you know stuff in their line to you know from um, you know, stuff you wore in your hats and yep. just, it was always about staying scent free sure. and all this sure. other stuff. It, well, they were real the adamant about scent. Yeah. I did the same. We yeah. all did the same stuff as what, that's what there was. That's right. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't have the capabilities of going out and taking a shower after, you know, before right. the hunt, cause they were leaving work Sure, and it was tight on time. Yeah. So it became a great alternative. I think that's why it's been so successful. Obviously, it works in the field, but uh, mm-hmm. other people, you know, I, I get every once in a while, we'll go to a sports show and somebody will say, you know, I see you use that nose chamber stuff. Does it, re- does it really work or is yeah. it something that you're just endorsing, which, you know, TV gets a little bad rap on that because some people endorse products just, you know, for economic reasons, but... That's one thing I like to pride ourselves at, at Driven. We we believe in the products that we endorse and always have. Most yeah. everybody's been with us for since day one. Mm-hmm. So, um, but obviously we have to try to fool critters' noses, yeah. and and that's our game. Yeah. You know, it's hard to take a wild animal on camera. Yeah. I mean, they are they don't read the script. Right, right, right. <laughs> they yeah. they try to to keep away from us, but um, you know. That kind of leads me to the next thing. Is this stuff just made for whitetail hunting, or is it made for other species? Well, I mean, excuse me, when we first formulated it and started testing it, I didn't know. You know, that's why I sent cans with my guys when they went home. Uh, But what I've learned has been tremendous uh, through the course of this. But what I've learned is... Trees, shrubs, grasses, they all give off aromatic compounds. Um, and it's a lot like a flower gives off a, a smell. What you're smelling when you smell a flower is aromatic compounds being given off by standing vegetation. But a flower does it at such a high rate, everybody can smell it. Right. All standing vegetation give off aromatic compounds. And game are conditioned to being exposed to that. So... <clears throat> It does work on every critter with a nose, and, and it does work everywhere. I had guys uh, buy product, call me and say, hey, I'm going to Africa. Does it work in Africa? I said, I don't know. And when they got to Africa, they were burning cow patties, okay, trying to overwhelm the sense of smell. Really? Yeah. Hmm, and that wasn't working. Right. And <clears throat> they hadn't killed, you know, these guys hadn't killed much, and uh, they started using the jammer and, and, and started shooting critters right away. Um, so that was interesting because it works that far away. And it's all about the standing vegetation. Anywhere you got standing vegetation, you know. And, and that's everywhere that critters live. 
But you know, one other thing that is I've learned has been so interesting is is all those critters have a high performance nose, you know, uh, but it's got to be clean. You know, if you bluff, blow a puff of smoke on that nose, let's see if they can fight their way out of it. Absolutely can't, as long as that puff of smoke is non alarming to them. And so, really, what we're doing is giving them a nose full of what they see every day, and it overwhelms a sense of smell. Um, <clears throat> it's like going into a pizza place. Next time you go into a pizza place, get, get a whiff of that stuff the, as soon as you get in the door, and it is strong. Right. After you sit in your chair for a while, waiting for yours to be done, um, it just wears down. Right. And and that's your olfactory just being overwhelmed. And Yeah, the scent is still there. Yeah, absolutely. It's as strong as it was when you went in the door. <clears throat> and that's really what we're doing to the critters. We're just overwhelming their sense of smell with something that's very common to them. That's an unbelievable. It's a natural product and in its best form. Well, you know, back to that wind thing. I, I wanted to back up just a touch because it was so. I was going to ask you. Yeah, let me ask you. You know how do how do you apply this stuff? Well, let me back up and I'll tell you how we apply it. But what was going on? What what happens now is um, I'm not playing the wind, um, and, and and everybody thinks that's crazy except for the people around me. I mean, I've got people that use Jammer that still pay attention to the wind. But one of the things with that is. It's a double-edged sword. You can play the wind and have things work out right and play the wind and the other 50% of the time not have things work out right. Sure. And I'll not play the wind and have things work out right. And then, you know, sometimes things don't work out right. I mean, nothing's 100%. And, but I've figured out that I'd rather be standing in that high percentage spot the whole time that I possibly can and just let the cards fall where they may. Because as much as I've, I know you've done this as much, uh, obsess over the exact right wind, you'll get in there and it'll swirl or a critter will come from behind the tree stand. So there's no right way there. And I think really what we've done is been able to just eliminate that and say, we're just going to let the cards fall where they may. And more times than not, they don't snort, they don't run off or anything like that. So... Um, yeah, the wind is a trick, and, and, and it'll keep you out of good hunting areas if you're not careful. Um, how we apply it, um, let me answer that. A lot of my hunters, as we learned more about this product, have you know taught me some neat things about applying it. Um, so we'll spray our boots and pants on the way in. That way, if you cut a trail, um, they don't go running off. <clears throat> my hunters taught me about spot spraying brush on the way to the stand and what that does they're just puffing brush weeds whatever on the way to the stand and what that does is it strings out that jammer and then when you get to the stand you spray the base of the tree i'll spray that tree's limbs when i'm standing in it finish up with a sleeve and a pant like i really feel like that closes the cloud down if I was to get in the tree stand and just spray my legs, I'd be leaving the top of myself exposed. So think about creating a cloud that surrounds you. Right. Um, and then and clothes probably keep that that scent a little bit longer than if you were to spray it maybe on a branch or absolutely. it doesn't dilute it. As no, much. you know, I, I think that it just closes everything down. Uh, why leave anything exposed, really? But uh, um, so, you know, really what we did when we started out is i was just spraying it on my tree and on myself and you would create more of a narrow scent cone if you will and 
let's say a mama doe, she'd come in from a right angle and she'd get her sense of smell disrupted um, and stop. And then she'd do a double take because the wind's coming from over there and she's got her sense of smell disrupted. So she's instantly going like this, whether she's alarmed by it or not. Um, And, you know, sitting tight when they do that was key because they'd go two, three breaths, Uh, on about my business. Now what we're doing is spot spraying on the way in. And sometimes if the wind swirls, I'll just hit it and it'll go coat that vegetation over there. And stringing the jammer out means when they start to get close, she already got it on her nose over here. So, I mean, I could have two cans on my tree. Nobody's home when she gets there. So stringing it out and easing that right angle, um, I mean, has created a situation where they're just not alarmed. And they're not doing a double take. So just to kind of clarify, when you're walking to your stand, your spot spraying, I understand that. Do you go past that tree stand location and still spot spray and turn around and come back? I mean, how many times have you just wanted to sneak to your stand and nothing else? Right. So I don't. If I'm on a food plot and nobody's coming and there's nobody around, I'll walk down and make a line. Um, sometimes the wind will swirl in a direction that you can't walk over to, just hit it, and it'll carry it all over the vegetation over there. Point being, um, you know, get creative on how you string that jammer out and get it in their nose as soon as you can. That way when they get near you, it's already in their nose. It's nothing right. different. Well, we've even done, what we've done here, um, that when we go out and we'll put out a, our, you know, one of our new muddy blinds, we'll stick it out, you know, this is a big permanent blind. Yep. I go in there right away, you know. I mean, before we're even sitting in it, when I just set it up, sure. I spray it. Yeah, um, kind of acclimates them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the other things that I was just thinking of when you were talking about application and stuff like that, I there's been multiple times that we've gotten in the tree and you know we're probably running late, whatever, and we're in a hurry and we forget to spray. Yep, and or for one reason or another, you're sitting there. And all of a sudden, you get a doe that just, or a deer blowing at you. Yeah. You're like, oh, you know, then it hits you, oh, I forgot to spray. So, I mean, obviously the stuff is in our pack. We pull it out and we'll start spraying. And I've noticed that, you know, that intensity of that deer being alarmed, I mean, they all of a sudden, it's, you can just like count the seconds uh, before that scent stream hits them. Yeah. And as soon as they smell that, they, they the alarming sense that yeah. they were, you know, giving you yeah. earlier, it just kind of, I think it just calms them down and they leave. Yeah. Like you said, if, if it overwhelms their senses of smell or whatever it does, there's been a lot of instances where we this has happened to us. And it, again, it kind of proves and, you know, Proves the effectiveness of this stuff, and mm-hmm. it seemed like it's it's worked for us amazing. So, uh, kudos to you. Well, spot and stock. We talked about tree stand hunting, um, but spot and stock uh, is, is is very cool. What I've learned about spot and stock and spider. Look at that! Just came down right up on top of us. <laughs> Carl, in his there's a there's a children's book about that. Um, no, it spot and stock attracts sp- <laughs> spiders. Yeah, I don't even have any on. <clears throat> no, spot and stock is interesting, you know, hunting elk, because really what you do is you, you spray your front and back. So if, if I locate some elk with my brother, 
I'll just cover my binos and he'll spray me front and back when we move in on him. Um, and it has been uh, very interesting how my elk hunting, for instance, uh, has changed. I would get close to a herd of elk and, you know, in the mountains, the wind is swirling. You know, I feel like you got about five, ten minutes and the wind is going to hit you in the back. So, you know, you end up rushing what you want to do. And now... <clears throat> I've learned to be more patient because us, I'll be near a herd, the wind will swirl and run, you know, go right over the top of them, go right in the herd, and nobody runs off. And then you stop and you think, well, wait a minute, just, just be patient. And you stay with them, whether you're going to stalk them or, or ambush them or call to them. Um, it just creates a situation where you can afford to be patient. So... Um, out west it has been really interesting how well it works i can't say it works better but good gracious i mean had i had it 20 years ago you wouldn't have believed the bulls that would pull up at 40 yards after all that work right and they would stop and the wind would swirl and it and they're just not doing that anymore which creates just more opportunity whether you hit them or not when you shoot at them uh yeah and in elk it's just so it's yeah like you were saying, that wind and stuff like that, those critters use their noses to uh, yeah. to travel back to, you know, from feed back to their bedding yeah. and wait for the thermals to yeah. change and stuff like that. Sure. And that, I know you've shot some monster elk, and, uh, you know, it's good that good to know that it works for that as well. I, I've seen that it really has helped us out yeah. on bear hunting. Yeah. Um, you know, because we do a lot of bear hunting, yep. black bear and, and uh, of course, grizzly. Yeah. Um, those critters are super yeah. keen on their nose. Them I mean, and hogs, I hear. They, hogs. Yeah, I hogs. got the incredible nose, too. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, they have, a, like, a, their sense of smell is, I think, three or four times greater than the whitetails. Wow. And, uh, you know, whitetails is pretty yeah. darn good. But, uh, like... You know, for instance, if you walk across the valley yeah. and the brown, if you go brown bear hunting, they won't even a lot of times let you walk anywhere until yeah. you're like, you find the bear you want to go sure. shoot. Because walking places and leaving your scent yeah. around is is totally bad because even if a bear cuts your trail mm -hmm. or cuts your scent, yeah. three or four days later after you've been there, mm. he's still leaving the country. Mm. And... uh and we've used this stuff, you know, super effectively <clears throat> hunting in Canada yep. for black bears. Matter of fact, we just went on a spot and stalk hunt up in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, same thing you were just talking about wind, a lot of wind shifts and stuff yep. because you're hunting right tight to the mountains. Yep. I mean, one minute it's in your face, the next minute it's yeah. at your back. You, you know, so we were using Jammer up there and, uh, Nicole stalked right in. I mean, like within feet of the bear she shot with a bow. It mm. was awesome. And you know what? I mean, there was a couple times where that bear kind of just picked up his head and just went right back to feeding. Sure. And I mean, I know he was just testing the wind, but yeah. uh yeah. hey, whatever happened, happened. Yeah. I mean, we got the bear. Yeah, it worked. It worked. So. Yeah, something interesting on the bears is <clears throat> I have a warning on the back of the can, use caution in bear country, and um, it works like kryptonite on bears. But the reason I put that on the back of the can was um, just so my hunters could be heads up, because what <clears throat> was happening was these guys had used the product. 
let's say, elk hunting where there's bears. And they were stumbling up on bears because the bears weren't smelling them when they approached anymore. Mm. So you'll be <clears throat> hunting elk and your wind will go in a certain direction. And if there's a bear in that direction, he'll just run off and you'd never seen him. So you never knew there was a bear around, period. That's the way they are. Um, but now um, they're not picking up the hunters. And so uh, it's so effective on bears, it's hard to believe. But I put a warning on the can just for people to be heads up, you know, because when you use that stuff, the bears aren't picking you up anymore, you know. So you just got to be heads up when you're using it and, you know, Keep, <laughs> you don't want to get on caught off guard. Well, yeah, you don't want to stumble on somebody, right? Because before they'd pick you up before you even saw them, and now they're not picking you up anymore. So just a little warning for my guys: make sure their heads up, you know, keep them safe. But yeah, it works so good on bears. I had to put a warning on it. That's pretty. Yeah, that's just kryptonite on them. I mean, how many times? I mean, I've bear hunted over bait and spot and stalked them. How many times did you just the wind made all the decisions? It right. was up to the wind. And that's one thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, I hunt with a lot of good hunters. They can shoot. They can get close. They know how to find critters, all the things you need to do. But really what it comes down to is, is the wind going to allow you to be able to harvest that critter? Right. Like especially elk hunting, for instance. You could hunt for two weeks, and the wind swirls right before you're going to shoot. Um, so when it comes down to... Is the wind going to allow you to do that? That's a tough variable that you just, I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like gambling. You don't know if it's going to go well or not. And so <laughs> it's been great in the regard that the wind really isn't dictating as much what happens anymore. Uh, and I like what you said earlier. I mean, you know, hey, hunting is hunting yet. I mean, there's going to be instances it's, there's never anything that's 100%. You ain't nope. going to guarantee 100%. Agreed. But, you know, you, we've all seen the results of it. Yep. Um, yeah, and well, what else is, tell me what else is in the nose jammer line? Obviously, we have the aerosols, and I like, of course, the smaller ones. But, uh, you know, I know that you've developed some other products that, uh, that you come out with recently that uh, also help. Well, we've got the field sprays. We've got shampoos, laundry, um, you know, all kinds of things. And they all have that nose gemmer smell. And the idea is the more of that nose gemmer smell you get on your body, your clothes, the field spray when you're out there, um, the more effective it is. <clears throat> now, like I was saying earlier, you blow a puff of smoke on that critter's nose, see if he can fight through it. Well, what's happening with the jammer when you create a cloud is that jammer if they get in your wind, is constantly blowing at them. And they can't process the jammer and get to you, to your inside. So say I don't shower, you smell. There's no doubt about it. <clears throat> but when you surround yourself with that jammer cloud, they can't fight through it to ever get to your human odor, which is on the inside. Uh, because they really can only process one airborne odor at a time. And the jammer is constantly coming on them. Mm -hmm. So... That's one thing that's really interesting. You create that cloud, and they just cannot fight their way through it to get inside of it to smell your human odor. That was kind of the premise behind a lot of the ozone product stuff that was out there in the market and still is. Uh, yep. They were building, it was encapsulating your scent. This is similar in a different instance that, uh, you know, don't use ozone. But, uh, you know, like you said, it builds that 
that frontal cloud That's that a, it helps cover. Just keeps you from keeps them from getting to you. Right, right. Um, so tell let's let's talk a little bit. Um, I want to pick your brain because obviously you've been doing this for a long time. Um, that's in outside of the noise jammer stuff. Tell me a little bit about some of your big buck uh, tips and tactics that have really put a lot, a lot of deer on the ground. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you've guided a lot of hunters. John has a, had an outfitting business um, that I started with back in the day called fair chase outfitting. And you don't outfit anymore, but you, you had a lot of guys that uh, you took out over the years and uh, had to, of course, you know, guide them into big deer. What, what would you tell the the uh, the viewer and the listener that you know things that work for you um, that they might not know of? Yeah, that's a good one. I would have killed a lot of big bucks myself had I not been guiding hunters. But uh, <laughs> but we had so many great relationships formed and and all kinds of uh, things like that. And you know, nobody these days cares cares if I get one. You know, it's if my kid gets one or, or somebody else. But, well, I don't know. You know, I, I stand by the fact that I think uh, a big whitey with a bow is is got to be the toughest critter, A, to get. You know, an elk, you could be out west, you could see him cross a valley. I saw him. I've got whiteys, and everybody does, that I've just never seen. Right. Um, so, I don't know, big buck-wise, man, I mean, I like to... Um, <clears throat> I like to hedge the odds in my favor with the habitat. Um, water holes, super big deal. Um, one year we killed eight out of 12 bucks on water holes. It was a dry year. Some places we brought the water in. And what that did for us is kept the pressure off the other places, the exterior food plots. Let's say a wooded saddle over here and there. We just manned up and sat water every day, all day long. And these, so these water holes were in the inside Absolutely. of the timber. Yeah, I mean, they got to be on the inside of the timber. And, and then to take it a step further, they need to be where the deer want to be and feel safe. And, and you can get in without buggering everybody. Right. But water holes, um, key. Um, and that made life easy during a drought. Um, some, some guys have water on their property. Well, if it's not inside the woods, it's not the same. I mean, you, you build a lot of water holes. Yeah, we and we talked about that. You know, my first deer was off a water hole uh, that I shot at your place, yep. and then Nicole's first deer, yep. her first Minnesota buck. Mm-hmm. I, it was our first year we we're dating. Matter of fact, that helped seal the deal on her. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why she moved to Minnesota. It doesn't hurt. I talk, took took her to Johnny's place and she yeah. shot a great big one, uh, like in the second or third day, and mm-hmm. it was on a remote water hole. Yeah. Up on top of a ridge yeah. that had no other water. Yeah, it had a food plot and a water hole on it, and we would come up the backside and not bug or anybody going in there. We shot 14 Pope and Youngs off that over the history of that little place. And they almost all were walking the same direction, drinking on the same side of the water hole. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, that place was interesting, and talking about, you know, strategies on big bucks, uh, it taught me a lot up there because we ended up, just hunting that waterhole and food plot and not the point out here or the wooded saddle on the left or the other point on the right. Eventually, we'd just pop into that plot and not hunt the rest of the ground, not hunt the rest of the 200 acres at all because everybody cycled through that waterhole. And what was happening was... It was in a central location. It was on a ridgetop. Well, what was happening was as the neighbors started to hunt, they'd push the deer in on me and we never walked on any of those ridges and there would be... 
um, it would go from 20 deer on there to 50 near the end of the year. And so that really taught me, you know, walking around, bumping them, that does have an effect on them. Absolutely. Wind swirling and then picking up their nose, looking around and going back to what they're doing, not a problem. Actually walking through the woods, bumping them out of there, a little bit of a problem. So some of my areas would load up because we didn't have to walk all over. And we could man that high percentage area um, for days at a time without pressure on the rest of the ground. Now, small um, properties, even better. You know what I mean? Even better. Use the jammer. Um, don't go trouncing all over. Pick a high percentage spot. Leave everything else alone. It's a great little strategy. Um, but, you know, aside from hedging the odds uh, with the habitat, um, I like that frequency thing, man. I really do because um, day number three seems like it's magic. If, I, if I've got an area and we know he's there and he's drinking out of that water hole, I honestly can't tell you if he's going to show up, whether you've got camera or not, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. You just have to sit there like you do in Canada and, and man it until they do come back. So that's that frequency thing. That's another. That's probably one of my best things that I've learned. Right, and I learned that too. Yeah. Uh, hunting with some pretty, you know, stealthy deer yeah. killing machines. Yeah. Stan Pods, Greg Miller's of the world. Those guys taught me a long time ago that if you see a big buck doing something once, yeah. chances are in the near future he's mm-hmm. going to repeat that process because he's old. He yeah. he's in a routine. He's like you know we would be when you get old. Yeah. I mean, you're just going to feel comfortable. You know it's safe, and you're going to keep doing it over and over. And like you said, you put in your time, eventually that buck will repeat itself. And I shot a monster typical this year on the exact same premise. Nicole last year shot a buck. We had a deer coming in, you know, multiple times. The cameras told the story, let us know that this deer was on a pattern. Mm -hmm. And all we had to do is get in there and hunt this deer. And uh, and she, like like I said, she shot, the, it was the biggest buck on the property last year. Um, she shot him with a bow at 10, 10 yards. And then this year I went in and, and shot the forky buck uh, on the same pattern, mm-hmm. you know, because I knew he would repeat that again at, at some point in the near future. And sure enough, I mean, yeah. that that's a great tip. It's just the frequency of it and and... You know, staying with it and not giving up because, um, you know, sooner or later, they're coming back. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, um, so that was one, you know, um, frequency was one. And he- hedging the odds with the habitat is two. Um, God, what would, what would a third well, be? I, I remember a big buck that you shot many years ago. Yeah. And I kind of know the backstory of it, obviously, because I was around. I had a little history with the deer because I picked up the yeah. sheds off a buck that you nicknamed uh, Captain Hook, I yeah, believe it was. That's it. And I mean, this is a giant typical with big kind of hooks off his twos. Yeah. And I think he even had one off his three or what. But um, I mean, you were playing cat and mouse with that deer for a couple of years and you established these these plots, you know, kind of near those bedding areas. And I've learned that from you is how you built these interior, you know, plots to become basically kill plots mm-hmm. um, and how you've protected them and kept deer from over browsing them and stuff like that. Just give us a little thought on and how you're, you know, 
manufacturing these little uh, interior plots? Yeah, um, I like clover, first of all, because you just got to trim it for a couple of years. So that's that's great. But, um, oh, God, I used to have 20 plots, I think it was, 20 interiors. I, I, I mean, in my country, I really like a waterhole food plot scenario. I've got most of them on tops. I've got a few in the bottoms. The ones in the bottoms are tougher to get to because critters just are going to see you. That's it. Um, Plus, there's water in the bottom of the, our valleys because yeah, of creeks. And yeah, stuff, and so. mine, mine are very water-free. There's not a lot of water, which really makes my water hole strong. But um, I don't know. I like those food plots on the inside. I like to get all rid of all the trees around the edges so you don't get any drip. Um, and it's not shading your food plots. But um, What size are we talking? An acre? Yeah. Half acre? Yeah, I mean, you know, half acre, make sure it's just clover or it'll all be gone. If it can be an acre, two acres, some of mine are, two and a half, um, even better. But um, very strong. I, I like them on top, you know. I say on top because you and I live in bluff country, but they're easy to get to. I mean, I can swing into most of my interiors on top, not bump one. Um, so I like them on top. In the bottom, it works. I'd be careful going in on the bottom ones. No problem on the top ones. I've got ones on the top. We could hunt them every day. Because the deer have to come up yeah, and go that's to it. you. That's yeah. the whole trick. I learned Gotta come that. come up because they can't hear you over the edge. Right. It's and, great. And they're bedding out on these ridges, and they got their own little yeah. you know, honey holes that they... They know that they can see anything, you know, coming up from the bottom, and yeah. generally they have the wind, you know, at their back. Um, learned that a long time ago, um, but yeah. yeah, interestingly enough, that I mean, we live in bluff country, and I always tell people, I say, I think that this area, mm -hmm. the driftless area, you know, with these bluffs and stuff, probably one of the, if not the toughest spot to kill a big mature mm -hmm. whitetail because they just have so much going on in their advantage, you know, to uh, beat you, yeah. whether it's visual, whether it's wind, whatever, just hunting them low can be a challenge. I know, you know, you've said this many times, if you're going to hunt them and you hunt them low, you're going to hunt them early, you know, when the vegetation is on that yeah. blocks their view yep. or you hunt them later on when, you know, it's in climate weather where it's rain and snow sure. where they have an issue with visual as well. Sure, yeah. No, um, <clears throat> the bottoms can be great, and I've got some really good spots in the bottoms, and uh, we've killed some bucks in the bottoms. And what I like about hunting a bottom is when you're using that jammer, it swirls, and when it swirls in the valley and they were sitting up on a hillside, they already got it in their nose a long time ago. But, um, no, I, I, I do dig hunting those bottoms. What was I going to say about, oh, I was going to say uh, about the rough bluff country. Um, well, they hide over the edges, on those edges. And, and what happens is if you try to come over the top on them, they go down. If you try to come underneath them, they go up. But those big bucks um, will get to just not moving at all. And they'll stay on those side hills because, and they won't <clears throat> stand up. I mean, I've had guys for years in tree stands all week long, and they'll come back when they're not moving, and all five of them will say, didn't see anything, didn't see anything, sometimes for days, buck-wise. And that's, that's not because they were in, everybody was in the wrong spot. That's because they didn't stand up. If they stood up, 
you'd see some of them. That's so right. I think I think these big bucks, for a fair amount of the time, are just laying down. And you sit there and scratch your head and go, "What did I do wrong?" Well, he he's got he's got to stand up for you to even get a crack at him or see him. Yep. Well, in in our country too, uh, there's such a thing called acorns. Yeah. So. Uh, one of their primary food sources becomes as soon as that wind knocks those acorns yep. down, we see a big transition to where deer leave the open yep. agricultural fields and, and food sources and all of a sudden become kind of obsolete. I mean, they just disappear and you're like, where did they go? Yep. And turns out they're in the timber, just they're laying down, they, they stand up and eat right there yep. and lay back down. That's and, it. There's no movement. There's, yeah. I mean, so they're not traveling any distance from bed to feed. They're right there. And yeah. to hunt them at that time becomes super difficult. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that we have learned, you know, and I know you practice the same thing, let the deer come to you mm-hmm. naturally, but you, you provide them a, an alternative food source, which is clover in the interior, whatever, and a water hole. Yeah. Now you've got two drawing cards versus just one. Right. I, I, I've said that all a lot to people. I'm like, mm-hmm. why these water holes have become so effective and this turning into more of a water hole podcast. But you know, it becomes a multiple drawing card and kind of I create mock scrapes and everything else that that, you know, gets the deer into that I don't care if they're coming there for, for the mock scrape, the water or the clover. Yeah. Um, I just want them coming there. Yeah. Chances are when they come in there, they're going to go to the water anyways because right, right. it's right there. Yeah. So, um, But you know, let think, the deer come to you. I think that's all I can do when the acorns fall is sit on water. I think that's all I could do. And if I had the choice between water and food, I would take water in my country every time. Um, but, I mean, I really think that's all that you have sometimes because they're so tight to those oaks, they're going to get up and drink. They got to drink. They don't necessarily need the clover because they're filling up on the acorns, but they got to drink, man. Right. You know what? (laughs) Interestingly enough, um, I don't think you even know this, but one of the places that we kill a lot of our big deer is it's like a 30-year-old pine plantation. So the entire top of this ridge is all pine trees Mm -hmm. and some walnut trees intermixed. Uh, there is no oak trees. So, um, you know, people ask us all the time, how are you shooting these big deer, you know, during the October lull? When generally everybody's frustrated because these deer are primarily feeding on acorns. I have none. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's all pine trees. Yeah. My primary food source is during that period is not, you know, acorns. It's going to be clovers and other things that is abundant there in that particular area they can still go and of course drop over the side of the ridge or you know go across the valley and find white acorns there's there's no doubt about it but they feel safe they've never been bothered where they're they're living um they just changed their diet and we've seen it so many times where you know a deer will eat a while and eat a you know off a certain food source but then it's almost like he gets his fill and he'll go and go to another food source or he'll leave the food source. It's just because they're, I mean, they're going to eat a, a variety of different things. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So. And and green when it's warm, grain when it's cold. Good you point. Know, we learned that one. Right. That's yeah. that's a big one yeah. up here. Yeah. You know, it, like you said, you like clovers. I mean, this year we planted uh, Roundup Ready Alfalfa. Mm. Um, 
and of course we've planted a ton of brassicas um it took took years you know for our animals to kind of get on eating turnips yeah, and yeah. and stuff like that radishes but we've planted evolved shop plot for years and uh it becomes a food source early season of course yeah. and then late season it's the only thing green and of course the deer just mow it they they really um they go for that stuff so yeah you almost and, can't stand over it enough because it'll be gone if you don't have enough all right <clears throat> remember that time that i was out at your place and you had a brassica plot was a strip that it ran all the way out on your ridge and yeah. there was a buck coming out there and we were at the house yeah. having lunch and all of a sudden uh, you looked out and you're like that big buck is out there in the middle of the day yeah. so like well what are we gonna do and so well let's get after him so we went out there and he was still in the plot we ran him off of the vehicle got set up in the blind and and a half an hour later, boop, he come right back out, yeah. and uh, I shot at him mm. and missed him mm-hmm. because I hit the blind. It was one of them wood blinds you yeah. had back then. Yeah, my my broad had hit that wood, and lucky it didn't ref- deflect and yeah. <laughs> take me out. Yeah. But uh, and then that buck, after he ran off, he turned around and come back again. That proved to me I'm like, wow, yeah. that stuff was really working. So yeah. absolutely, and those old bucks, man, their teeth are um you know getting old like they are so that brassica they they glom onto it when it's late right i remember the big eight we had out behind the house you just couldn't get him shot but then he got old enough and he was probably eight i don't know maybe even nine by that point you had had some brushes with him but he he couldn't stay out of the brassica his teeth were getting old and i don't think he was into the corn like he just couldn't eat it like he normally did and he had to eat you know, right. and the brassica was really what ended up uh, being his demise. Oh, I, you know what? We've had so many memories hunting at your place. And, uh, of course, I got to tell a few of the funny stories, too, because there is, a, <laughs> if you go to John's place, it's very colorful. Um, if his wife, Katie, is, she, she leaves an everlasting impression on you. Mm. But John has a, uh, he has a whole basketball team of kids. Um, and uh, I remember one time, John, when I pulled into your place, and um, not to not to be, you know, don't make this sound bad, but I, I had laughed my butt off so hard because your wife had just got a brand new pearl white Escalade. Yeah. And your kids decided it needs some pinstriping. Mm-hmm. So they were out there with a permanent black magic marker and it wasn't really a straight line they were drawn. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just like kid marks. There was big swirl marks all over the side of your car. John came out there, and you looked at that. And you're like, yeah. Turn around and just walked off. Yeah, that's why when you're on a dirt road and you got a lot of kids, you get ranch trucks. I learned my lesson. Oh, yeah. No, they've done some incredible things that uh, they have not done anything like I did when I was a kid. I wrecked some of my dad's trucks and sunk his bass boat. <laughs> and I can't tell you, but I've put that right back the way it was. But well, why, your he didn't, why he didn't kill me, I honestly, I don't know. Oh. They, these guys haven't scratched the surface. They did duct tape um, Kate's car. I think <laughs> duct it was, tape yeah, tape. last year. That was the big smart thing to do is duct tape. When you pull the tape <laughs> off, though, there's the problem. Is that, that residue. residue, yeah. So we had to bring it in. Somebody had to get it removed. Oh, I don't know. Well, one, one time... We're at John's place, and uh, 
I don't know, we came in for lunch and Kate was making some pizzas or John called them Zaz. And, uh, we're, we were sat, we were watching football or something. And I'll sound like something. I, my phone had fallen down in the crack of the couch and I started digging down there for it. I kind of picked up the cushion and I looked and there's my phone, but there by my phone is a big diamond ring. Kate's, you know, engagement ring or wedding ring or whatever it was. Sure. I looked at it. I'm like, yeah. what is this, Kate? She's like, oh my God. She said, I've been looking for that for a month and John don't know it's missing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh. no, I don't think I ever told you that. Yeah. So no. no, believe it or not, it's gone for good now. <laughs> well, somebody's going to come up with that one. Oh, yeah. And one time I was out, uh, I had a Johnson, I was practicing. And I know we're telling a lot of stories, but they're some of the most memorable. Um, I was out practicing, shooting my bow. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, on the shed there, side of the shed, you, know, you don't mow there. So the grass is a little taller. And I was walking along, going to get my arrow. And I looked down, and there's a brand new brand new set of uh, binoculars laying there in, yeah. in the grass. And I'm like, yeah. Uh, I call him bringing him back to John. I'm like, are you missing something? He's like, yeah. that's where them things went. Oh yeah, that's like I'm getting I'm getting it all back. My dad says I would leave his tools all over the yard, oh. and then they're leaving all my stuff all over the yard. So I don't know. I'm I'm trying to be patient with it, and uh, uh, nobody's lost any fingers or anything yet. So we're good. What the cool part is though, your kids are getting older now, like like ours, and uh, they're you know, into the hunting stuff and they're helping you, you know, we see them at the trade shows, which is pretty cool. You you brought up some good kids, even though they've had a few (laughs) bumps in the road, but, uh, that's what it's about, you know, getting the kids out there and getting them involved. It it is my, my son, Tyler, he, what is he? 16 now. Um, yeah, he got in a stand last year, one that he knows of called a buck in, um, buck comes up, stopped, finished him with a grunt behind him, got him to take those few extra steps, hard shot him. Uh, got to put it all together. He was He's much bigger than I am, and he's pulling 70 pounds with like a 30-inch draw, so he shot a doe through the shoulders or something, you know, just trying to test w- what he's got kinetically. And I said, listen, this is a great shot, but don't don't shoot, you know, near the shoulder anymore, so... I got, you know, of course he's going to shoot through the shoulder again. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, so yeah. you got to learn, right? Made a good shot on this buck. <laughs> I don't know if he shot through the shoulder or not, but, um, oh, we've had a good time. The, you know, what's, what's cool about raising them in the country is they just, in the summertime, will go out and they'll just, once they get out of bed, sometimes they'll just have their underwear on and put a pair of sandals out there and go shoot the BB gun, you know, right. no neighbors around and, um, so that that's a pretty cool upside that they can really uh, hone their hunting skills um, living in, in the bush. Not many people get to grow up in that kind of environment. And it does, no. does, definitely molds them, you know. Absolutely. Gives them that experience that sure a does. lot of kids don't Well, you can, all, get. you can always go get a little bit of city. Right. It's, it's hard sometimes to, to get, you know, that element that the country teaches you. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I mean, uh, I think that's... That's what kids are lacking nowadays. You know? Absolutely. You know, yeah. there's too much of that digital world in their face yep. and uh, they ain't getting enough time outdoors. So. Yep. so just before we're wrapping up, John, what's next for Nose Jammer? Well, you know, we're, what we're doing is um, um, working on producing products um, 
that fit in the nose jammer lane, if you will. What what my goal is here is to stay in my lane and just produce products um, that help jam the sense of smell. You know, products that I would use. You know, if I don't, if, if the the next few products that we're working on are really stellar, uh, and people are gonna dig them, but if it's not something I'll turn the car around and go get if I forget, we don't want to bring it out. And that's what that's what our goal is, is just to keep producing products that jam the sense of smell um, in many applications and, and, and produce products that uh, do what they say, you know, and, and stay in my lane. You won't see us making arrows. I won't be making triggers, you know what I mean? And... Um, things like that. We'll stay in our lane and just produce things that overwhelm the sense of smell, help people get close, you know, get close shots, more opportunities. Well, hey, I can appreciate that. And we look super forward to using that product. And I want to thank you today for uh, helping us out here. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again. My pleasure, buddy. Thanks for having me.